Hello everyone and welcome to Sunday Night Bible Fellowship. It's great to have you with us today as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. We will be looking at today as we did last Sunday. So this is God and Government, part two. So if you want to open your Bibles to that particular section, we will take a look at it. First of all, just reviewing a little bit of last Sunday and then continuing on with what we started last Sunday. And you'll see all the various things that we are going to be covering today. And I welcome everyone from actually around the world. It made me mindful of that this week because I was studying various kinds of governments that exist around the world, nations, leaders, exist in all different kinds of varieties, and we'll see that as we go through here. But I not only welcome those who are here in the United States, but those who are listening from all over the world. And uh, we're grateful that you have joined us. We trust that this will be instructive to you. We are lacking greatly today in people understanding the role of government and the role of the believer in its relationship to the government. So, with that, uh, open up your Bibles and let's take a look at Luke chapter 20 and 19 to 26. Again, just to set a timeline here as to where we are. I've got the calendar up here, Passion Week, and we are on Wednesday of that Passion Week. We're at the end or at the bottom of those red squares that I've got on Wednesday. The very last one is the Jewish leaders plot to kill him. So this is on Wednesday. Friday, he will be crucified. So we're getting very close to that time. Nevertheless, Jesus continues to teach, to instruct, to expose the religious leaders of that day, the phony baloney that was going on in a religious system that was condemning people to hell. And so Jesus is very pointed in what he says. They're trying to trap him, and they are unable to do so. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 26. We covered this last time. Let me just do a brief review. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So again, it was the parable that we covered in the previous section, talking about a landlord that owned some land on there. He had a vineyard. He had vineyard workers. And the whole gist of the thing is, is that He kept sending his slaves back to reap some fruit from the vineyard, and they beat him, beat the slaves, ended up killing them, and finally the owner sends his son, whom they kill as well. They didn't want anybody disturbing their system. They figured if they killed him, he'd be out of the way. They'd have the vineyard all to themselves, of course. This application is to Israel and to its leadership. And so 
They, because of what Jesus said in this parable, they tried to lay their hands on him that very hour. They wanted to do away with him as soon as possible. They feared the people because the people were on Jesus' side at this point, and they understood that the parable was spoken against them. So they watched him, it says. The Pharisees did, the chief priests, scribes, and so on. And they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that he could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. Of course, Pilate being there in Jerusalem now because of the Passover to keep law and order in the city. And so they wanted to deliver Jesus over to the authority. That's all they needed to do, all they wanted to do. If they could some way find a violation on Jesus' part, then they could turn him over to Pilate, and they knew from there on, if this man was trying to cause an insurrection, if Jesus was trying to cause an insurrection, he would be put to death, and that's their way of getting rid of him. So verse 21, they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any but teach the way of God in truth. Of course, all of that, as far as they're concerned, though it all is true from their vantage point, they're saying those things only to butter him up, to try and get him to back into a trap, and then they've got him. So those are insincere things. They don't mean any of it. It's just a pack of lies. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Verse 23, but he detected their trickery, and he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? So someone came forth with a denarius, which we said was about a day's wage, and he says to them, whose likeness and inscription does it have? Likeness would be the image on the one side. Inscription would be what would be on the back side. And he's asking them, who do you see here? And they said, well, we see Caesar's. And he said to them, well, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So he answers them in a very genius fashion, so to speak, intelligent fashion in the fact that they're not going to be able to pin anything on him for that answer. So he is making a division here between that which exists here on this earth in terms of nations and governments, and those things which belong to God. And so he is saying he is upholding the fact that there needs to be government, that there needs to be nations. We know that. We know that ever since the flood and governments were established as a result of the flood, the first government, well, then Jesus is just upholding that. But it gives us an excellent opportunity to talk about government in a day and age where there is very little teaching about government. Many people, pastors, whatever, won't touch it because it is so volatile. But this gives us an opportunity for us to take a look at the subject. And Jesus here makes a division. He says, look, you got a coin, Caesar's on the coin. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. Of course, Caesar, what does he demand? He demands taxes, rightfully so. A government 
which needs to exist, needs to have money to fund it. That money comes from people, and they fund the government. But he says, on the other hand, the rest of it, you, your lives, who you are, you owe all of that to God. God requires and demands much more than Caesar will. But you also get a much greater return on what you invest with God. So, last time we started taking a look at biblical view of government and its leadership from five scriptures. And so, I, I think that if you can get these scriptures down, if you can understand them and whatever, it will relieve a lot of angst, a lot of worrying and being upset and so on over what's going on in government leaders and so on, because this is very plain, it's very simple, it's principles right from Scripture, and here is what they say. Number one, Daniel 2.21, it says that God removes kings and he establishes kings. In other words, he puts people in power, he takes people out of power. In any given time, any given century around the world, you've got all these nations, and so on. God is the one who's in charge of it all. He's the one that's putting people in place. He's putting presidents in place. He's putting prime ministers in place, chancellors, supreme leaders, and so on. Those people he's handpicking, he's putting in those places. And he also removes them from office. And you say, well, what's the criteria that he's using? He's using the criteria according to the plan that he has. He has a plan, a plan which will, in the end, bring the most glory to him. It will magnify him, all of his attributes to the fullest. So, therefore, just like he does with everything within his sovereignty, he is directing kings, presidents, so on just as he wills, just as he wants. His sovereignty, listen, his sovereignty is so deep, it goes down so far, it reaches everything. And it reaches those who are even in power in this world. And that brings us to a second scripture, which is Proverbs 21.1, which says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So that verse says not only does God put kings in office, but while they are in office, he is the one who is taking their heart, the decisions that they make, what comes out of, for instance, the White House or the Kremlin or or wherever it might be. He is the one that is channeling those decisions the way he wants. We look at it, we say, these are leaders doing their own thing and whatever. That's not true. Scripture is very clear here that it's the Lord, it's the Lord God that is taking the hearts of men and he is channeling those hearts just like water and they're in his hand and he turns them, he turns their hearts wherever he wishes. So those two first verses, Daniel 2.21, Proverbs 21.1 are very important verses because they are foundational to understand the fact that God is in control. He's in control of who is 
in leadership and he is in control of the decisions that those leaders make. All right, brings us to a third one we looked at last time. Based on those first two, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So, being the fact that God has put kings in power, put leaders in power, and he is turning their hearts, our responsibility is to pray for them, is to pray for them. If we spent more time praying for them and less time griping about them, we'd be in much better shape. We are to pray. We are to pray that God would take the heart of the king and he would turn it towards good, righteous, moral values that would come out of the government and would be for the good of the people. And we're doing this and we're praying and so on. Notice at the end of verse 2, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Ideally, what we want out of the government is for the government to protect us, for the government to take care of us, to punish evildoers, and so on. And let us, as believers living in any nation around the world, let us have the freedom and the tranquility to go out and to tell people about Christ and to disciple them and bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ and to maturity in Christ. And that's the goal, and that's what we want to leave. We pray that God would allow that to happen, that we would have that. Regardless what country you live in, that's your prayer, is that God would grant that to you. Tertullian. Tertullian lived in the second century and the second, third century, between 160 and 240 AD. I think this is interesting when you talk about prayer. If you go all the way back to the second century, here's Tertullian. Here's his prayer concerning government. I think it's quite interesting what they were praying way back then. He's only, you know, a couple hundred years away from Luke writing this and Paul writing about praying for our government leaders and so on. Tertullian says this, quote, we offer prayer for the safety of our princes to the eternal, the true, the living God, whose favor beyond all other things they must themselves desire without ceasing. In other words, we pray for all our emperors, we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged, for security to the empire. And they were living under a dictatorship. It wasn't a pleasant situation. Tertullian says, we pray for protection for the imperial house, for brave armies, for a faithful senate. We pray for a virtuous people. We pray for the world at rest whatever, as man or Caesar, an emperor would wish, end quote. So you can see here's somebody, and when he prays, these are the things he's praying for concerning his government. And you know, it's just a prayer based upon the, his understanding of the sovereignty of God 
and that God is the one that's in control of these leaders, whether they be princesses or whether they be emperors, whoever they might be, Caesar, it does not matter. These are the things that we pray for them. We pray for their safety. We pray for their protection, for their security, and so on. Everything that's bound up in this prayer. I think it's quite interesting. A fourth, on the next slide then, a fourth passage of Scripture is 1 Peter 2.17, where it tells us that we need to, as believers, honor the king. So we're not only to pray for the king, but we are to honor the king. You say, how can we honor the king? What if the guy does and what comes out of his office are immoral, evil, wicked uh, things, whatever? It does not matter. It says here that we are to honor the king. And why are we to honor him? Because this is someone that God has put in office. And if God has put him in office, then what God wants us to do, being good, citizens is we honor the king. We don't have to agree with what he says. We might disagree with it. But we do not want to hinder the gospel because we're looked at as a bunch of rebel people, a bunch of rebellious people that are always angry about who's in office and what they're doing. Because that in some way will discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ and our testimony. And that's supreme as we live our lives, is our testimony. So therefore, we want people to see that we are people that regardless who's in office, we honor the king. We put him up because we realize he's there. We realize the decisions he's making is governed by God. And therefore, we are to pray for him and we are to honor him. And it wasn't pleasant. If you think about And I've spent a lot of time thinking about in the first century, when you go from the book of Acts all the way through Revelation, really, it was a very difficult time for the Christians. We don't know here in America, perhaps you're listening from someplace in the world where you're receiving a lot of persecution, Christians are dying for their faith and so on. Here in America, that's not true. If you go back to Fox's Book of Martyrs, you will read in there this quote, and I quote it to you because it tells what it was like in the first century. In A.D. 67, that's the time Paul, Peter is living and so on, Nero, who was the emperor, ordered the burning of Rome. The fire lasted for nine days, and when the blame turned to Nero, Nero blamed the Christians. And Nero came at the Christians with a new vengeance. Nero contrived all manner of punishments for the Christians that the most infernal imagination could design. In particular, he had some sewed, some believers, sewed up in skins of wild beasts, and then they were attacked by dogs until they expired. Others were dressed in shirts made stiff with wax were fixed to stakes and set on fire in his gardens in order to illuminate them. This persecution was general throughout the whole Roman Empire. And in the course of it, St. Paul and St. Peter were martyred. End quote. The thing that's so remarkable to me is living under that kind of leadership and rulership in your government and the New Testament. You Work your way through the books of the New Testament 
And you know what? There's not a word said, there's not a complaint made about those who are in power. Again, Peter tells us to honor the king. He's living at this time when Nero is in charge. Paul, the same way. And both of them are telling us to pray for the king. They're telling us to honor the king. They're not saying to ever complain against the king. Trash the king. Talk trash about the king. Talk down about the king. And that's, let me tell you, that's mighty convicting for us. Because how much do we do that on even a daily basis as we hear things coming out, whether it be from the government or in politics or or whatever it might be, it's real easy for us to slip into some kind of criticism. And that's not God's will for us. And so we need to remember what it was like in the first century and the fact that the first century church and Paul and Peter and James and Jude and John None of them in their epistles or any place about the fact that they are critical of Nero or Domitian or any of the emperors during that time. That brings us to a fifth passage, and that passage is in Romans 13, 1-7. Verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, in the next slide, I put a definition of authority. An authority is anyone who has the right to make decisions that affect your life. Authority is anyone who has the right to make decisions that affect your life. So Paul is saying here, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, those that are over you, that make decisions on your behalf. We are to be subject to them. Now, there are some exceptions, and we'll get to that later today. For there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Here's a quote from John MacArthur that says, quote, every Christian no matter what form of government he lives under, is under command from the Lord to maintain proper and useful submission to that government for the sake of leading a peaceful life and having an effective witness, end quote. That's just what we were talking about when we're talking about prayer for the king that we might lead a tranquil life in all godliness. That's the goal. And it doesn't matter what form of government you're under. Paul was writing this with all governments in mind for all time. And the command that goes out is that we submit ourselves to the government. So every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Did you catch that? God has no competitors for authority. He is the supreme authority. He is the supreme leader of the universe. He is the one that has brought it into existence. He's the one that directs all things in the universe. So authorities that think that they are in charge really are not in charge. And notice it says, and those which exist are established by God. Now, that's exactly what we saw, wasn't it? When we looked at Daniel 2.21, it says that God puts kings into power, and he takes them out of power or out of office. So the ones that are in office 
These are the ones which have been established by God, those which exist. Any given century, any given time, whatever you see that is out there for governments, those governments exist and have been established by God. We talked about last time the importance of government to maintain law and order in this world. On the next slide, I've got forms of government. This came out of Wikipedia. It's just a list of all different kinds of forms of government that exist. You say, well, the very first one on the list is anarchy. How can that be a form of government? Well, it's a form of government in the fact that when uh, governments uh, do not have leaders or lose their leaders, whatever, and they're without a leader, maybe for a period of time, anarchy takes over. And it's an absolute disaster. But it becomes, at that point, a form of government. So you can see there are just all different kinds of forms of government. There just isn't one form of government. And all of these serve a purpose. God has a purpose for all these different forms of government. And they are accomplishing exactly what he wants them to accomplish in this world. You go to the next slide, and now you've got not only different forms of government, but you've got different titles for the leaders of countries or nations or governments. So you have, for instance, in some countries, you have a president, as we do here in America. Other countries have prime ministers. Some countries have a president, and then underneath that president is a prime minister. Other countries have what's called a premier. Some have a chancellor. For instance, Germany has a chancellor. Some countries have kings and queens. We need to kind of put an asterisk by this because they are not usually those who are conducting policy for the country and making laws and governing the country. They are more figureheads. For instance, the UK, Britain, you will find kings and queens. And though they have influence upon the leaders of the country, upon prime ministers and parliaments and so on, yet they are not deciding policy, but they do have influence on those. And then lastly, you have a supreme leader. A supreme leader is a dictatorship. For instance, North Korea, Kim Jong-un is a supreme leader. He is a dictator. And there are some of those. And again, remember, all of these individuals, regardless of their title, God has put in place for a particular reason. And he will accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish through these different forms of government and through these various leaders and the titles that they have and the function that they carry out in their particular positions that are in. Bruce Hurt has a good paragraph here I want to read for you, a quote from Bruce, and it just says a lot of different things. Let's look at it. Quote, All through the Old Testament, God represents himself as the controlling force behind every government on earth without exception. Therefore, it isn't man's elections or his revolutions that determine the governments of earth. We think it is. In Mexico, they used to do it by the process of revolution. You never could change the government there without a revolution. 
but neither elections nor revolutions determine who sits in the seats of power. It is God who does so. These things are only the instruments by which he works his will. And the revelation of Scripture is that God puts in power the men of his choosing, whether they be good or evil, whether they are beneficent rulers or tyrants like Hitler or Stalin or Mao or any of the others on earth by the permissive choice of God. If you struggle with that, it is because you don't see what is behind God's purpose in the world today, and that he is El Elyon, the sovereign most high God over all the earth. The questioning of why God allows evil comes because we do not realize that God is not attempting to govern the earth properly. He is waiting. He is withholding. He is restraining evil. He is governing to a limited extent, but he is not trying to do the job as he will someday. We've not seen the end of his story or history yet. Every government that exists is held in the palm of God's hand. It can only go as far as God wills. It is under his control. It has been instituted by him. Furthermore, God sometimes may, for his own purposes, place even wicked men in positions of power. For instance, Nebuchadnezzar. The apostle Paul himself was imprisoned and finally executed by Emperor Nero. Yet he never counseled rebellion or disobedience. End quote. Let me just give you some scriptures on this that point out those truths. Habakkuk 1.12 says, Are you from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them. Who's them? It's the Babylonians. Evil, wicked Babylonians. Who appointed them? He did. He appointed them to do what? To judge. To judge who? To judge Israel. Because Israel was disobedient. And you, O rock, have established them to correct. Habakkuk is saying, look, I understand this. I understand we as Israel, we are in a bad place because of our disobedience, because of our sin, because of the wickedness and evil that has come into us. And you are going to take that which is godless, pagan nation, the Babylonians, and you are going to use them to discipline us. So you have established them, you have appointed them to do the correction, to do the correcting work in the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 27, 6 and 7, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. What? My servant. And I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. Now there's a couple of things about that passage. Number one, what does God call Nebuchadnezzar? A pagan, godless king. He calls him 
my servant. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar is doing and going to do exactly what God wants him to do. He is going to, in actuality, he doesn't realize it, but he's serving God and the things that he's going to do. But that will only go on for a time, and that's what verse 7 says. The second thing, and that is that someday they're going to turn around. There's nations and great kings and so on. They'll make him, Nebuchadnezzar, their servant. One thing you have to realize if you go back and you take a look at history is that nations are coming and going. Nations rise up, nations disappear, all under the direction of God. Let's take another look at at authority and, and so on and God being in control out of John 19, 10 and 11. This is the exchange between Pilate and Jesus. And Pilate asks Jesus a question. Jesus remains silent, doesn't answer. And so in verse 10, it says, So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? In other words, he's saying, How dare you not speak to me? I've got the power over you. Now notice verse 11. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can't touch me, Pilate, unless God grants that to you. You have no authority. Pretty revealing. Daniel 4.17 says that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it, his rulership, on whom he wishes. In other words, how he's going to rule every particular nation, that's up to him. Because he is the Most High, and therefore he is over all of mankind. Then if you go, and we covered this when we looked in the book of Revelation, but I think it's just really interesting. Revelation 13, 3-7, of course this is the time talking about the beast, the Antichrist, and so on. It says, And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. The dragon is Satan, the beast is the Antichrist. Satan gives authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. Now I want you to notice the times here it says there was given to him. The fact that the Antichrist could act, the fact that the beast could act, the fact that Satan could do anything on the earth during the tribulation period is because God granted it to be done. And that's why it continues to say, was given to him, was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Again, you go all the way through the tribulation, who's in charge? God is. You can look at that time and you can say, God can't be in charge. Look at the wickedness. Look at the evil and whatever that's taking place. But the fact of the matter is God is in charge and he's bringing to an end history and mankind and he is punishing and doling out wrath upon mankind for their wickedness, for their sinfulness. And all those little things, he is using Satan, he is using the Antichrist, 
He's using the false prophet. All the details of all of that, God is the one who is ordaining it all to take place and uh, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So, we move from verse 1 then of 13. And those which exist are established by God. Verse 2, therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. For they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So uh, verses 2 through 7 now is just an application of what it says in verse 1. So if God is the one that has established the authority, if you oppose it, and it is the ordinance of God, it is what he has ordained, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. If God has established the authority to bring forth moral righteousness, whatever degree that might be in, you oppose that, you'll bring condemnation on yourself. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. In other words, the rules, the laws, and so on of the land, obey those. If you don't obey them, you can expect to be fearful of them. And you can expect to receive wrath or condemnation as a result. But if you do obey the laws of the land, you do subject yourself, submit yourself to the government, then you will have praise from the same, it says. Verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good. Notice what he calls government. It's a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. Sword was used for one thing. It wasn't for trimming your fingernails. A sword was used for killing. Uh, this is a verse in justification for capital punishment. The government has the right to do that. It does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That's a prime purpose for government, is to punish evildoers, to reward those who are law-abiding citizens. That's one thing, and another one is to punish evildoers. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. I mean, how can you have a clean conscience before God if you are violating the laws and so on of a government that he's established? I mean, you're guilty. We want to have a clean conscience before God. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. Here's Paul reiterating exactly what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 20, when he says, Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. So, because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So, render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear is due. And again, honor to whom honor is due. And by the way, we're not honoring the office, we're honoring the person that's in the office. I hear people say that, and they say, well, you know, we're to honor, we'll honor the office, but we won't honor the person in the office. 
that's senseless. Senseless to say you honor the office, but not the person that's in the office. Paul and Peter said, honor the king. All right. Ray Pritchard says this, quote, Human rulers are God's servants. As such, they deserve four things from us. Taxes, revenue, respect, and honor. We may think we are heavily taxed, and we are, but hardly more so than in the first century. Rome had an income tax, a head tax, a poll tax, a road tax, a wagon tax, a crop tax, an import tax, an export tax, a harbor tax, and a bridge tax, to name only a few. The Caesars liked to live in style, and it cost a lot of money to maintain that huge empire. So they taxed their people heavily in order to pay for everything. Paying taxes is a Christian duty. Tax evasion is not only a crime, it's also a sin. End quote. You may not like the way your government spends the money that you send to them in taxes, but again, that's not up to us, that's up to God. You be model citizens, you pay your taxes, you do what is right, God will take care of you. I think it's interesting, I put at the bottom here, that the Roman historian Tacitus noted that in AD 58, this is right around, it's in the first century, there were persistent complaints about taxes, and I think that's part of why Paul writes this in Romans 13, is to say, pay your taxes, because there was a groundswell of people who were rebellious and did not want to pay their taxes. Paul says, Christians, pay your taxes. Okay, be good citizens. Don't allow the fact that you're going to get caught up in some kind of rebellion that's going to dishonor the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. You do not want to do that. That is paramount in your life is the gospel and getting the gospel out. It's not saving money through not paying your taxes. One other passage of scripture which says a lot of the same, but I just wanted to cover it and show it to you. First Peter 2, 13 to 15. We've been looking at Paul in Romans 13 and what he says. Well, what about somebody like Peter who writes two books on suffering and the suffering they were going through in the first century? Peter says in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, we're doing this for the Lord, to every human institution whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and praise of those who do right. Let's stop right there just a minute. So you've got a king that's in authority. You've got governors underneath him. So whether we are talking about in our country, president of the United States, or we are talking about the House, the Senate, Supreme Court, governors of our states, mayors of our cities, police force, whoever it is, we are to submit ourselves to those individuals because they've got two purposes. Notice it in verse 14. For the punishment of evildoers, we just said this a little bit ago, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. There in a verse is the purpose for government to do those two things and to carry out the various things that come out of those two things. Verse 15, For such is the will of God 
that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish man. See that? You see where we're doing this because of our testimony. We're, 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 by doing right, we silence the ignorance of foolish men. Foolish men who are rebelling against the government, whatever, and are ignorant of God and his will for our lives. The exception to submission to the government in all things. This naturally will come up and people will say, but isn't there an exception to that? And there is. And three exceptions that you, or three examples that you'll see of an exception to submission. Number one, in Daniel's day, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship the king's golden image and were cast into the fiery furnace. But God took care of them. God protected them, even though they did that. They went against, refused to worship the king's golden image. Number two, God's people were ordered not to pray to their God. Daniel, in violation of the law, worshiped the Lord God, refused to obey the king's decree, and for that was thrown into the lion's den. God protected him there. Number three, in the book of Acts, we are told that believers were ordered not to teach the people in the name of Jesus. Acts 5.29 says, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So, we disobey the government when God's word tells us to do something and the government forbids us, or when the government tells us to do something and God's word forbids us. Now let's talk about that a little bit more. Here's, here's a quote. Uh, someone has said, on one level, the answer is clear. You can go as far as the law allows you to go. You can picket, you can collect petitions, you can write letters to the editor, you can call a talk show and sound off, you can vote and encourage others to vote with you, you can visit your congressman or your senator, you can take out an ad in the newspaper if you like. Submission doesn't require you to keep your mouth shut about injustice and corruption. However, the issue of the heart is very important. It's better to keep quiet than to speak out in burning anger. If you believe that God can work his will even through a corrupt leader, that will temper your comments, cool your emotions, and keep you from doing or saying something you may regret later, end quote. Kent Hughes says, quote, our conclusion is this. A Christian must obey his government when it asks him to, number one, violate a commandment of God, number two, commit an immoral or unethical act, or number three, go against his Christian conscience, a conscience which is informed by Scripture and is in submission to the Holy Spirit. John Stott says the principle is clear. We are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God, end quote. Just some examples of that. If the government forced us to abort babies to maintain population control, we should resist. If the government forbids us to gather as believers, we should gather anyway. If the government banned the Bible, we should own and distribute Bibles 
anyway. If the government commanded us not to say anything about homosexual behavior, we should teach what the Bible says anyway. Well, that brings us down then to verse 26, which says, And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. You know, it's really interesting. He went ahead and he told them, Render under Caesar that which is Caesar, render under God that which is God. Look at Luke 23, 2 here. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. That is just an absolute bold-faced lie. We just saw Jesus say, Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. And what do they do when they, they get him in trial? They say that he forbid people to pay their taxes to Caesar. But the wonderful thing about this verse 26 is it says that they were unable to catch him in saying, in a saying, in the, in the presence of the people and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. They never have been able in Christ's earthly ministry to pin anything on Jesus, nor will they ever be able to do so. And they are so amazed by his answer, it says, that they became silent. Must have been quite a scene. They're always trying to trap him. They're always trying to back him into a corner. They're trying to get him to go against Rome because if they do that, they've got them. They've got them. All right, let's take a look at some application here as we close this section out. Number one, don't ever think that anyone could prove Jesus is untruthful in what he says in his word. The great white throne judgment will not be the place to prove your point. You're not going to be given the opportunity if you're an unbeliever and you never come to Christ and confess your sin and ask for forgiveness for your sin and repent of your sin and receive the gift of salvation. You're not going to be given the opportunity in some way to argue with Jesus at the great white throne judgment. What's going to come out of that judgment, the gavel is going to come down and you are going to be found guilty and cast into the lake of fire, period, end of story. Number two, government is an important and greatly needed institution in the world. It has its place in the believer's life, but just not one of prominence. If you find that your life is dominated by political thoughts and, and news and watching whatever you're watching, CNN, Fox News, CNBC, MSNBC, whatever it might be, that you're watching and filling your mind with all those things, you are being led astray. It's not prominent. You pay your taxes, you submit to the government, you give a word of righteousness or godliness here and there. As we said, you might write a letter, you might do this. You, you, whatever influence you feel that God has led you to do, you do that, but you have to realize that your calling is not a calling to try and revive the United States of America. Your calling is to save people in the United States of America. And whatever nation you are in throughout the world, and I'm speaking to people I know around the world, there are 195 countries in the world. Through our statistics of our website, we've seen that people from 180 different countries have come and listened to 
our website. And a hundred of those nations, there are people that come back regularly to listen. You're out there, you're under all different kinds of, we've got people from Russia, from China, all different kinds of places that are, that are coming back regularly to listen to our class. And we're thankful for you. And we, we all understand as believers that what our calling is, is to get the gospel out, is to see people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and avoid an eternity in hell. And so I don't want something to totally captivate my mind and my thoughts and spend my time in that type of a thing because someday that's all going to burn. It's all going to be gone. If, if this world tarries, if God tarries and his patience continues 100 years from now, 500 years from now, United States of America or any other nation may mean nothing more than a paragraph in a history book. It may be as small as an asterisk in a history book. And everything that you put into it is down the drain. But what you do for God, the gospel that you give out, the people that you talk to, the people that you bring to maturity in Christ, the use of your spiritual gift in church, in the church, and elsewhere, all of that is building something that will be eternally rewarded and will go on throughout all eternity reaping rewards. It's a poor investment for the things of this life. It's a good investment for eternal things. And that brings you to number three. No government, as we've just been saying, not one of the 195 governments or countries in this world ever saved one person from hell. No president, no prime minister, no supreme leader, and no politician will ever be the savior of mankind. If the church is going to play that game of idolatry, it will bring the wrath of God upon itself. And I can't say that more strongly than people who get so caught up and so involved in the government that it becomes their idol and they spend all their time there or a good share of their time there. Instead of spending it in the Word, spending it and ministering to other people, sharing the gospel, and so on. And God will not share His glory with another country or another nation. He alone deserves that position. And if we make an idol out of anything, whether it's politics or somebody in politics or a nation or form of government or whatever, you know what? God will deal with us. We'll be bringing His wrath upon us. Number four, the believer has to learn from the scriptures what part government will play in their lives. Believers need a biblical view of government. And that's what I've tried to give you these last two weeks, uh, at least in some form, that you can understand it. You can go back. You can study Old Testament examples. You can trace through. God working with leaders and putting people in office, taking people out of office, how he treats people in office, how he, and there's all kinds of examples uh, of that happening. We need to have a biblical view of government. Number five, God demands and deserves far more from us than the government. And that's, I think, what we take away from this passage of scripture we've been looking at. And that is the fact that God says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. But boy, 
To God, what do you render? You render your entire life, which you don't do to the government. You render your entire life. You give God your entire life. So that as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and paid the price in order that I might have salvation. He deserves a whole lot more. Government is just a speck. God is everything. Well, let's pray together. Father, these have been good times that we've been able to spend taking a look at you and government. And they are not on an equal par. Uh, You are everything. You are the one that sent your son. And through belief in him and faith in him, we have eternal life. No government gives us that. But we do realize, on the other hand, that government is here. And you have instituted government for a very specific purpose, for the law and order of society of this world. And I pray for people everywhere that are listening today that are in and under all kinds of government. Lord, I just pray you'd be with them. Help them to apply this just as we here in America need to apply this. We need to subject ourselves to the governing authority as well as others throughout the world. And we do that so that we don't hinder in any way the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want that to be prominent in our lives. That's what we're called to. And so we are really, we really pray for all of those people that are out there that uh, might find themselves in difficult situations. They might find themselves persecuted and so on. So we just pray for them. We pray uh, that you would be with them and that you will take care of them as you took care of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you took care of the disciples. You took care of Daniel. Please take care of them as well. Uh, Give us strength. We're thankful. All of us, for whatever country we're in, we're thankful for the country, for the protection, for everything that it affords us. And whatever amount of freedom that we have to be able to go out and to tell others of Jesus Christ, may we take advantage of that while we still can. So we pray that you'd go with us now, that you'd use us for your honor, for your glory, to further your kingdom, the kingdom of God. For our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. We have a dual citizenship, but we're thankful that one of those citizenships is in heaven for which we are all headed someday to spend eternity with you. For we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen.